Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that understands that finance-led growth is theft. You nailed it. (laughs) Today we have Laura and Zoe. (laughs) And today we are talking with Grace Blakely. Grace is the economics commentator at the New Statesman and research fellow at the Institute of Public Policy Research. She just published an incredible book called Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. We are so thrilled to have her on. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yes. <laughs> it's so fun. I like. It's interesting also because obviously after reading your book, I like knew that you were based in the UK and I, I'm always like, oh, I wonder how she'll sound. <laughs> <laughs> Did I meet expectations? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You exceeded it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have had some people come up to me like at random points on like, you know, in coffee shops or whatever and just say, your voice is so lovely. <gasps> like yes well I mean I agree I agree (laughs) um Grace is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of introducing yourself Uh, maybe like how you got interested in this topic or anything like that yeah sure so um I I guess I started working at uh, this think tank which is kind of a lefty think tank in the UK called Mm -hmm. the Institute for Public Policy Research um, and we were doing, we were like, you know, doing a bunch of stuff, looking into like what was wrong with the UK economy um, and then, you know, generating like policy solutions to deal with it. And I was just kind of like, like I wanted to go a little bit deeper and look into what was generating all these massive problems that we saw, that we've seen in the UK and the US since the financial crisis. Um, and look at it from like a historical perspective, like bring some marks in there, you know, all the good stuff. Um, so yeah, I kind of took some time off, started writing this book and since then, like things have kind of taken off and now here I am in New York, like (laughs) doing events with Verso and stuff. So it's all, yeah, it's all very exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it's also cool that there's like lefty think tanks because I feel like there's so many right wing think tanks, at least here in the US and like very few on the left. And so it's fun to like talk to people who are uh helping helping the cause on that way (laughs) yeah I like to think of it that way (laughs) for sure um so we really like to make sure that everyone who listens to our podcast has some basis of understanding before we dive in so let's talk about what you mean when you talk about financialization in your book you cite the best known definition of financialization, which is um, that it involves increasing the role of financial motives, financial markets, financial institutions, and the operations of the domestic and international economies. Can you expand a little bit on what we're talking about when we talk about financialization and why this is the central focus of your book? Yeah, I'm glad that you read out the definition so that I didn't have to. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, basically, <laughs> yeah, it, um, it basically means that uh, you get bigger banks and other financial institutions. So lenders and investors, uh, people who like lend money and manage money, um, playing a much bigger role in all parts of the economy. So it's not just like, you know, the finance sector growing. It's also the fact that... Um, the like behaviors and incentives of corporations, of individuals, of the state, etc., they're all shifted 
um, by the kind of rise of finance and the incentives that it creates and um, the kind of structures that it that it puts in place. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, well, I mean, it's not cool, but <laughs> yeah, it's like it's it's not cool, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's truly the worst. And but I'm glad that you. I think that it doesn't get the attention that it needs. And I think part of that is maybe um, because of some of the information around it being a bit hidden and stuff like that, too, which we might get into in a little while. Um, So you also write, whilst all capitalist systems are premised upon the monopolization of the gains of growth by the people who own the assets under finance-led growth, these dynamics become more extreme. Um, and I really liked this sentence. I had to read it like four times because I was like, yes. Um, because I think this is what so much of what Marx shows us, or at least for me, what I really like about Marx is like, here's what capitalism's already doing. Um, and, but like it's working essentially, but, uh, I just wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by this. So like, what do you mean by the extreming of how does financial, how does finance led growth like increase those extremities? Yeah. So like the big kind of distinction that I have in the book is this like class distinction between people who live off work and people who live off wealth. Mm. Um, And that's, you know, just the the classic Marxist distinction between labor and capital. I just change the terms of it because it's easier to understand that way. Um, But I kind of argue that back, you know, when Marx was writing, this labor capital distinction was, was really like sharp and acute. And you were either an owner and you had stuff or you were a worker and you didn't really have any assets. Mm. That started to change during the kind of post-war period of capitalism, right? Um, where you started to get, um, you know, the uh, more people kind of earning higher salaries, some people are owning their own homes, uh, maybe some people kind of engaging in stock markets, those sort of stuff. And it kind of blurred that distinction between labor and capital, between the people who work for a living and the people who own all the stuff. Um, so, yeah, like for a while, it seemed as like it seemed as though maybe those class boundaries would become less, um, less kind of sharp. And then you had, you know, the rise of finance-led growth, which kind of sought to make everyone into like a mini capitalist, right, into a property owner by giving everyone like access to a mortgage and letting them buy their own homes, even if it meant kind of, you know, massively over leveraging the financial system in the in the, in the process mm-hmm. by like privatizing pension funds, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then we get up to 2008 where we've got, you know, this massive expansion in ownership. And a bunch of people have basically been convinced that even though their wages aren't rising as much as they once were, that they should support this system because their assets are going up in value. But then you get the financial crisis, right? Um, and uh, this is a point at which this whole model and system starts to break down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at the changes in the nature of class over the last like 100 years or so shows you that, yes, under all these systems, you know, there remains that distinction between labor and capital people who live off work and live off wealth and there's always a massive inequality between those two groups but under finance-led growth where you get a tiny number of people at the top kind of monopolizing the gains from growth um like cutting wages reducing investment etc but then that's concealed by the expansion in property ownership by like you know more people owning their own homes pension funds etc um and that that attempt to like expand 
the, um, the, the, the class basis of what it means to be a capitalist ultimately creates the seeds of its own demise because it involves the massive expansion of debt um, in a way that like ultimately leads up to the financial crisis. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so we wanted to also talk about some of the history kind of leading up to your book. What do you see as the origin story for finance? Fi- oh my God, I can't say it. Financialization. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I I look in the book at how finance-led growth emerged out of the crisis that took place in the US and the UK in the 1970s. Um, And basically, this crisis kind of emerged from, it emerged out of the conditions created by that post-war period of capitalism, where, you know, it was called the golden age of capitalism, right? You had, like, stronger unions, and the state played a much bigger role in the economy, like, employment was going up, things were a little bit, like, less unequal in the global north. Um, but like that system, which is basically a system of like compromise between labor and capital, between workers and owners, it broke down in the 70s when you got these overlapping crises, right? You got the oil price spike, you got the breakdown of Bretton Woods when the, the, the dollar um, was no longer convertible to gold. Um, and you had kind of rising unemployment, falling productivity, rising competition from abroad. And what that meant was that those kind of class tensions that had been like pushed down under the post-war social democratic system, like exploded into uh, the fore and you got much more like industrial conflict, um, you got uh, like um, it kind of more overt intellectual conflict between like the right and the left. Um, and it was during that moment where like the old model broke down that a bunch of people like politicians, thinkers, you know, business people, bankers came together and kind of pushed for the adoption of a bunch of new ideas, what like kind of what we now call neoliberalism. Um, and the implement, implementation of those ideas basically like shifted power back between those two groups. So it took power away from working people. You had like the assault on the unions. Um, you had like the, the um, kind of demise of the welfare state. Uh, and it like empowered the people that were backing them up, which was primarily international financial capital. So you had like a massive reduction in bank regulation. Um, you had like stock market booms, privatization, all this sort of stuff that gave rise to like the situation we're in today, this this period of finance led growth. And I guess like the most important thing that I think to, like we need to take away from that is the understanding that historical change doesn't just happen because like a bunch of people decide, you know, we're going to change policies. Mm-hmm. It happens because, you know, class forces shift. Yeah. And you have, you know, a period of, of, uh, of stability between those, those two forces in society that ultimately kind of deteriorates into a crisis. And then you get more conflict. And then out of that conflict, you get the emergence of a different kind of, of model based on who's able to win that battle. Um, so I kind of take issue with the whole thing of like, all we need to do to fix capitalism is to have a plan. I'm like, no, we need class power. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, like, as you are, I'm sure aware, like, we're like very much in election season, which is like fucking way too long in the United States. But um yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. And like, you know, <clears throat> we can support Bernie Sanders and and know that he's the leftist 
most leftist option. Um, at the same time, it's really hard to hear people talk about like the deep hope they have um, in terms of like class struggle um, as it as it relates to the election. And so I love that you said that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, it's really important, right? And like, I think in the UK, we're a little bit more aware of this because we've had a longer history of kind of socialist governments coming to power and disappointing the rest of the left. But it is that you it is something that you need to continuously remind people because we've been convinced that like the be all and end all of politics is just elections mm-hmm. especially here we have so many elections but it's like no that's you know just one element of politics it's an important element but you know we also need to like build power right. yeah i think exactly. that's a perfect um segue into something i wanted to talk about next which is neoliberalism um mm-hmm. which you cover a lot in your work. And could you talk more about the connections between neoliberalism and capitalism? Yeah, so I suppose I see see neoliberalism as kind of an ideology, uh, a set of ideas. Um, And I think the implementation of those ideas gives rise to finance-led growth, which is a kind of economic structure, I suppose. Um, And basically, neoliberalism is kind of an intensification of the logic of capitalism. And crucially, it is um, the expansion of market relations into areas that they didn't previously exist. Um, and I, I think this this links to like what David Harvey calls accumulation by dispossession. Um, so, you know, you get the pro- like privatization of things that were previously nationally owned. Uh, you get um, like marketization of social relations. So, you know, um, you are increasingly having to pay a private company to provide you with healthcare, with uh, with social care, um, you know, like various different things that maybe were previously provided for by the state or by your community. Um, and it also involves, I mean, like an acceleration of um, the dynamics of imperialism in terms of the global economy, like um, hyper exploitation of workers in the global south. Um, and it's kind of intensifies exploitation by allowing capitalists to make money, not just from exploiting workers in the production process, but actually by extracting from them in other ways. So through like extremely high rents, for example, or through like lending them loads of money at really high interest rates. So I don't see it as like a perversion of capitalism. Mm. I just see it as an intensification of the fundamental logic of capitalism that is allowed to happen because there's this group of people that gains all the power and are like, we, you know, things are not going so well for us at the moment. We need to get like, get the ability to be able to extract more from this economy. I know, right? (laughs) It's exhausting. It's so (laughs) exhausting to like hear and know and feel all at once (laughs) i know right (laughs) (laughs) sorry i'm like yes this is all brilliant yes everything you're saying is so true and yes it's like depressing as shit being alive is really hard (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're all on the same page here um (laughs) So yeah, one thing I really liked about your book, in addition to how accessible and interesting it was, is how while you distinguish financialization within capitalism, you're not somehow letting capitalism off the hook, um, as you were just really kind of talking about. You write, uh, quote, financialized capitalism may be uniquely may be a uniquely extractive way of organizing the economy 
but it is not to say that it represents the perversion of an otherwise sound model, which is like literally exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, um, can sound bites. <laughs> I know. Well, it's fun. Well, it's good. It's like consistent, right? But my, I'm like curious, like if you're speaking with a lip, which is to say, you know, a person who is like for gay rights, but isn't trying to overthrow capitalism, um, how would you explain to them that financialization exists because capitalism is working the way that it's meant to? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I guess you have to kind of look at that. It, it's really important to look at the historical development of capitalism. And most libs will have this prevailing view of economics and, and the economy, which is very static. It's based on like, you know, we are all individuals competing in a marketplace, working to maximize our utility, right? It doesn't pay any attention to like historical institutions or like how capitalism's changed over the centuries. Um, and so most liberals will have this idea of, you know, in the post-war period or like in Scandinavia, capitalism works well. We just need to regulate it properly. Then we'll be able to save the environment and then we'll be able to kind of, you know, do all the things we need to do. And you just have to look at the way in which just even like the modern corporation has developed, right, from, you know, um, emerging uh, like, well, not really emerging, but kind of taking its current form at the beginning of the century um being like very like becoming internationalized very um like becoming you know the emergence of these big monopolies that you had in the us with like the trusts and, and the whole thing around antitrust which then led to you know a system in which corporations were more regulated but it didn't take very long for those corporations to because you know their whole reason for existing is to make as much money as possible obviously it doesn't take that long for them to kind of push back against the regulations that are imposed on them so this idea of regulated capitalism um it has to you know you have to create a system that is able to completely and utterly contain the pressure created by the constant pursuit of profit and that's not really something that any regulatory system can do as long as you have a bunch of people at the very top um, kind of, you know, seeking out profit above everything else, they're going to carry on doing that no matter how much you try to regulate them. They're going to get around those regulations. They're going to find even find ways of making money from those regulations. And an even deeper problem is like, why would states implement these regulations in the first place if they are basically being funded by the businesses that they're trying to control. This, you know, often like liberals have this view of uh, the state is separate to the economy, is separate right. to the legal system, etc. But like Marxists know that that isn't the case. You know, we're often kind of derided as saying the state should take control of everything. But we're pretty skeptical about like the capitalist state's capacity to do much. Yeah, because yeah. it's so heavily influenced by like big multinational corporations, big banks, etc. Um, so basically, I think, you know, capitalism, if you look at it historically, has an inherent tendency towards monopoly, towards um, deregulation um, and actually towards like closer and closer relationships between business and the state that ultimately prevent any attempt to kind of create a less extractive model. And if we don't actually start like changing this system very, very radically, mm. very, very quickly, then, you know, the planet's going to be burning. So we don't have time to like have these arguments about whether or not we can go back to like the 19, you know, the 1930s, 1940s. We have to really start thinking radically now about the big changes that we need to create. Absolutely. And do you do you see like a specific role that financialization plays in climate change as like in a, other than like, you know, the monopolization that you were saying, like 
I'm thinking of I'm I don't know if you've read Naomi Klein's uh, This Changes Everything Capitalism. I have started reading it, but <laughs> I haven't I haven't finished it. It's it, it's a new one. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's not that new. Uh, her newest one is actually on the flooding in Puerto oh, Rico. No, yeah. Sorry, that one is the one I've started. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, either way, she's amazing. Highly recommend all of her books. But she talks a lot about um, how, you know, these these, uh, supposedly environmental organizations like uh, the Sierra Club and these other organizations are actually, like, playing the capitalist game and are are just like actually ramping up the inequities between people in that way. And I didn't know if in your research you came across like specific instances of how um, financialization is exacerbating climate change as well. Yeah, there are a bunch of different ways. Um, I mean, firstly, obviously, you know, where do fossil fuel companies get their financing from banks mainly Um, from banks and on bond markets Um, and obviously on, you know, their investors are in equity markets. And and many of those investors are actually us through our pension funds, right? So, you know, we have this huge financial system, which is basically a system of intermediation. Um, So with, you know, someone standing between people who have savings and like companies that need investment. Uh, The banking system is kind of separate to that because it involves the creation of, of credit. But that system of investment is, you know, us, ordinary people, as well as billionaires, big corporations, et cetera, who have money that they're able to save, that goes into a big pot. That big pot is managed by like big asset managers, big institutional investors like BlackRock. Um, and ultimately it ends up going, you know, th- their only mandate is to like maximize their profits. So we end up having our savings invested in lending to fossil fuel companies or investing in fossil fuel companies right and that is a way that the finance you know we would not do that were it up to us most people would not want their money invested in these companies and yet many find that that they are because there are so many like links in this chain Mm. of of money management um there's also so quantitative easing um which is uh this it's it's kind of complicated but basically it's it's central banks creating money to buy assets like stocks or um, or government bonds. Um, and the way in which central banks have done this has not been sensitive to, again, these concerns about which companies we should be investing in. Uh, you would have thought that central banks would, would like say, right, we're going to prioritize buying up assets that are green or, you know, bonds or equities for um, environmentally sustainable companies. But no, they've just kind of done it um, you know, based on uh, with with little consideration for uh, for the climate. Um, and I think, you know, there's also just the fact that like the creation of endless amounts of debt facilitates like extremely high levels of of consumption today, which is basically extraction from the future. Right. You know, if you're like borrowing loads of money. Sorry. Did I... No, no. Yeah. No, I'm just saying exactly. It's borrowing yeah. from the future because you you mentioned something like that in your I think it was like the introduction too. I really like that idea. Well, I mean, I hate yeah. that idea, but I think it's a good visual of like what it's really doing. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's basically like what debt is, isn't it? It's, you know, unless you are borrowing to do something that will create the returns that you need to pay off the debt. So like if you were investing in a business, uh, if you're just, you know, borrowing money to go on holiday or to, I don't know, buy a car, right? 
that is all that is doing is taking money out of your future earnings and pulling it forward to today. And so it allows us to sustain much higher levels of consumption than we otherwise might be able to. Now, in in certain ways, that's a good thing. You know, like if that was managed properly, then debt could be something that we could use to like boost our living standards, help deal with climate catastrophe, like all these other things. But because debt is created today just purely like by, you know, self-interested private corporations that only care about maximizing profits, we end up in, in a system where like the most debt that is created is neither um, used for like productive purposes, so to, to like create jobs or expand the economy, mm-hmm. and also has very little consideration for like environmental impact. So, you know, debt under financialized capitalism is really a way of like stealing the future, right? Hence stolen, the name of the book. Yes, <laughs> love it. Yeah, so you were talking about this a little bit before, um, but I wanted to talk more about your critique of social democracy yeah in the book um which you know we love to see it oh yeah um (laughs) could you talk a little more about those critiques and what you see as being the ideal future or way forward yeah so i guess the critique of social democracy is again based on this understanding of history as driven by like class right so there Mm -hmm. are a bunch of people who basically think social democracy was created by some clever people with clever policies and, you know, the guts to stand up to big business. But actually, you know, social democracy emerged because after the Great Depression and after the Second World War, you had a society in which organized labor was much more powerful, the state was much bigger, and um, the wealthy, their power had been massively constrained, both because of rising taxes and because of rising regulation, particularly on finance. Um, And so you had a situation in which you also just had universal suffrage. Right. Uh, Well, in the in the UK. uh, Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like that that post-war period uh, emerges out of a very different balance of forces in society. Working people were able to demand a very different set of economic and political institutions. And they did. And we had the NHS here. We had, you know, the welfare state. You, in the, there was a similar sort of um, set of institutions, although not as expansive, built up in the US. And the state came to play a much bigger role in kind of managing the ups and downs of the economy. Um, it was only when that class balance um, became less stable that you saw the emergence of a different system. And the reason that, that that became less stable was because, as I said at the beginning, you know, social democracy is built on an attempt to like contain and like push down mm-hmm. these contradictions, these tensions that exist between labor and capital, between people who live off work and those who live off wealth. You know, there is there is no way of making those that conflict go away under capitalism. It's just you have to find different ways of like um, of dealing with it. So historically, you know, working people have just been oppressed, mm-hmm. denied access to the legal system, etc. Throughout the post-war period, there was this sense that they were being incorporated into decision making a little bit more. But ultimately, those tensions were still there. Um, and as a result, when the system fell on hard times, so when there was like, you know, a slowdown in globalization, a slowdown in productivity, um, when there was... Uh, this oil price spike that sent inflation really high, then you saw like those those tensions, that conflict that always existed under the surface, kind of spill out into like you know into the streets. Basically, you had uh, industrial disputes, strikes, um, 
you know, economic chaos, etc. And that is the problem with social democracy. It's that mm-hmm. it doesn't, it, it tries to deal with class conflict by um, encouraging compromise. And that's fine when there's loads of stuff to go around, right? But as soon as, uh, you know, the, the, the economy falls on hard times, that model is tested. You're seeing this today in like many other Nordic countries, that their system of social democracy is being steadily eroded. And actually in this context, like in the wake of, this huge financial crisis, the far right is gaining more and more support because, you know, the system cannot contain the like inherent tensions created by capitalism. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I'm always really curious because I, you know, I think historically, like when we look at the UK and the US, you know, at the same time as we had the New Deal and there were all of these kind of like social democracy wins, quote unquote wins happening, you know, FDR was like essentially scared of a socialist revolution. So he he was like, "Uh, I guess we'll do these things so that we don't have communism. Um, But I, I think that, you know, you see those parallels historically. And the thing that is always interesting to me is I think like the UK and the US have really similar like neoliberal like hyper neoliberalism going on and also but it like the thing that I'm always just like well why didn't we get a fucking NHS (laughs) so like when you were mentioning that I was like fuck (laughs) like it's so it is such a massive thing that like yes of course like of course of course it's like just concessions to like stop class war from happening but at the same time I'm like always just like man it would be so nice to have fucking healthcare right so true right and this is why the system worked and was stable for such a long time is because it did actually make working people's lives a lot better Mm. you know that's that's definitely true of like social democratic systems with capitalism they work much better they work for people much better they're less unequal etc right the problem is just that they can't work like that forever because of the like problems that build up within those systems and and ultimately create kind of crises yeah exactly right it's like the classic like post Keynes versus marx vibes yeah exactly very fun yes (laughs) (laughs) um are there things about financialization that you think are like kind of major things that people don't understand or don't get that you'd really like to hammer home I think um the thing that I want everyone to understand is that the most like people have this idea of class right where it's like working class middle class upper class And it's about, you know, where you shop and like where you went to school and like how you talk and all this sort of stuff. Um, And I really just want to reinforce and bring home the point that the one big distinction in all capitalist societies is that distinction between people who live off work and people who live off wealth. And yes, for a long time, that has been kind of um, muted because people have started owning their houses, because they've started owning stocks, etc. But the point in the book is that 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 inequality between those two groups is going to get worse and worse and worse. And the whole like boomer millennial thing is basically that playing itself out historically. If there's a bunch of people who are able to kind of jump on the boom, boomers were able to jump on. (laughs) It's actually not, yeah, kind of boomers, Gen Xs, who are able to basically take advantage of um, like high levels of credit, low house prices, um, privatization of pension funds, generate a ton of wealth from that boom period 
and um, and, and keep that stored up in, in their assets versus millennials and Gen Z for whom who are experiencing what the economy will continue to be like unless we fix it, which is nobody can afford like, you know, very few people can afford to buy their own homes like pension funds. Most millennials aren't saving for their pensions. They don't expect to retire. They don't expect to be able to earn enough to like keep them going when when they hit retirement. Um, they like, you know, we're being encouraged to like rent furniture because we can't even like afford to buy that. Right. It's just this weird system where the 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 divisions between ownership and working become much starker. And you see millennials being hyper exploited, like working long hours in jobs they hate, you know, not earning enough to pay the rent and then not be able to own anything either. Like not be able to own their cars, own their homes, own their furniture, like own, you know, pensions, whatever. Um, and that question, that problem of like, how does capitalism survive if the majority of people have no stake in it because they can't own any capital. I think that is the big question for our time. And it is what suggests that, you know, this whole like millennial socialism thing, it's not just a passing fad. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is, you know, this is what the economy is like now. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was <laughs> muted for a second. <laughs> I was <Sorry>. like, Zoe. <laughs> um <laughs> So in the process of writing your book, was there anything that really surprised you while you were doing research or just about like the process of writing a book in general? Um, so like, I, I don't know if you saw in the book, but like each chapter I tried to start with a little story mm-hmm. or like, you know, a, a kind of a historical um, like snippet that kind of illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. And what I was really surprised is at like how many amazing stories there are of just like massive baddies. <laughs> I kind of thought that it was going to be quite difficult for me to be like to find, you know, stories of like super financialized, really extractive corporations screwing over their workers. And you know, <laughs> I don't know why I thought that would be difficult. I just thought it was so <laughs> obvious and happened so many times. Yeah. But like there are so many historical ta- like stories of you know, uh, corporate raiding, like uh, green mailing, um, you know, just like really just corporate scandals that happen one after another. There are such obvious close links between the finance sector and big business. Um, And and what was really quite striking as well was the extent to which the people implementing the policies that led to finance-led growth 100% knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They wanted to like expand property ownership so that people would think of themselves as capitalists so that they wouldn't support socialism, right? And they totally. knew that's what they were doing. They knew that, you know, they had to go to war with the labor movement, like defeat in the UK was defeat the miners and like deregulate the finance sector and, you know, do all this stuff. And it just makes for a really good story. Yeah. I know. I love that part. And it also like, I think that's part of what makes it so accessible. Um, I used to be an academic. I used to be a PhD student. And it was like my constant thing was trying to be like accessible language, accessible language. (laughs) Yeah. Let's not fucking gatekeep all of this like knowledge and information that's so it just like felt like a a reproduction of the same uh, issues that we were trying to address with our research. Um, And so I'm so glad you said that because I completely agree. Yeah. Like, I was thinking about when I started writing the book, I was like, do I do a PhD? Do I write a book? And partly it was like, you know, people 
who are in the movement with me being like, you don't have time to do a PhD, do the book <laughs> and do media as well. Yeah. But it was yeah, also yeah. like, you know, I, what is the point of writing about this stuff unless you are doing it to like give people, like ordinary people an understanding of what's going on and make them conscious of their own power. Exactly. And like the language that is used often in like, you know, academic Marxism even, mm-hmm. let alone like, professional economics, is deliberately alienating. And it's totally. really makes pissed off well and i mean like we could go way into this but i i think us on this show we think that that ties (laughs) into like heteropatriarchy a lot too and white supremacy and like all of these other oppressions that are like linked to capitalism but also separate in the sense that they have their own uh effects of oppression that go with that um because even if there's like leftist men who are marxists and they really want to they agree with everything in your book like they would still be fucking gatekeeping shit if they didn't do the process of like unlearning yeah and it's all like you know you see it all over you know especially online it's like let me just explain this thing to you that you just wrote a book about (laughs) 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 that like i am super smart and know everything about this thing Ugh, sorry we do swear a lot on here i don't mean i'm not telling you to fuck off for for the record i'm telling men (laughs) men to fuck off (laughs) i completely like arty i i totally agree (laughs) (laughs) amazing um so we wanted to wrap up the interview with kind of the subtitle of your book so the subtitle being how to save the world from finance financialization wow that word has been tripping us up this whole right? time <laughs> it is a tongue twister <laughs> i like the way americans say it because i would say like financialization financialization, financialization. <laughs> yeah very good i should i mean like you you I think take it a little slower and we're just like financialization like we just like slur it all together (laughs) was funny when I was reading it I didn't have any issue but like I hadn't tried saying it out loud and then when I was like reading it out loud I was like oh whoa (laughs) I do that all the time though like words that I've only read and haven't ever said before exactly (laughs) wow um, but so again, you know, it's how to save the world from financialization. So you kind of go through some of these potential solutions and everyone should go and read your book, of course. Um, so first of all, do that. But, um, you know, what do you see as some solutions to this major issue? Yeah. So I guess the, like the solution section, um, again, is like, is premised upon that understanding of history is driven forward by class. Mm-hmm. So The argument is we need a set of policies articulated by a movement that are aimed to rebalance power in society away from capital and towards labor, i.e. it's not just about like some nice politicians getting power of the state and using it to like implement good policies. It's about a social movement that can kind of um, like integrate with a political party mm-hmm. and then hold the leaders of that party to account with a set of demands that will benefit them right and the reason for that is that you know the first model of just nice politicians doing nice things <laughs> is completely you know obviously it's unrealistic but it also leaves you open to being kind of captured by a big business by the state whatever so it's so important to constantly have roots in a big powerful movement that can hold you know politicians to account that can push back against the kind of onslaught that any socialist government can expect from the rest of the system 
So with that in mind, like the arguments I put forward aren't like a set of clever policies. I, I see them as kind of a set of demands for a movement. And they're broadly, um, you know, it all fall, falls under the line of a socialist government needs to take on the banks the way that Thatcher took on the unions. So we need like to properly regulate the financial system. We need to kind of control credit creation, control people's ability to move their money all around the world. And we need to create public banking systems uh, in, in place of that. So what I was saying about the need to use credit to like achieve environmental goals, to reduce inequality, like that would happen as a result of a, a public financial system. I'd also see debt forgiveness as part of that, like the state, you know, public banking system buying up um, unpayable debts and like either writing them off or like refinancing them. Um, then there's a bunch of policies that are aimed at kind of increasing the power of people to organize. So like a four day week, the removal of anti-union legislation, um, like a whole bunch of services just free at the point of use from healthcare to like, you know, social care, uh, housing, etc. And then like over the longer term, there are some policies that aim basically to like remove that distinction between people who live off work and those who live off wealth by socializing ownership by basically like giving rise to a situation in which everyone owns a little bit of the system um, and like, yeah, it has a role in, in controlling how those resources are used. So I argue for, uh, you know, obviously, you know, in the UK, the story of nationalization is pretty, um, pretty like firm. You know, we know that that's some stuff the Labour Party is going to do. I also argue for like worker control of, um, of some companies um, of cooperatives mm-hmm. uh, for this model of like community wealth building where communities like have a much greater stake in ownership and um, also this idea of like a people's asset manager which would uh, get over that issue of like us having all this pensions wealth and it being invested in ways that we don't like by putting that all together in like a democratic institution that we could use to like direct wealth into the places that we wanted it to go so good <laughs> Yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Okay. Um, Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Just thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been lovely to chat to brilliant, intelligent, wonderful women who, yeah, don't do things like try and talk over you or tell you that you're wrong about like X and Y and Z that you've just spent the last year researching or... (laughs) Just try and, try and show you how big their dick is. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is one of the nicest endings, honestly. Right. I never, obviously, I do I love it. Stuff. I never get to talk to other women. It's bullshit. <clears throat> well, we are so fucking thrilled. We'll obviously link to where people can get your book in our description. Um, Follow me on Twitter or something. Yeah, exactly. We'll link to your handle as well. I have to, I have to do that myself. great (laughs) yes um well thank you so so much for coming on this was so fun and informative and i loved your book and i want to like reread it with a like closer lens because it was one of those things that's like as it's coming close i'm like just reading it reading it reading it um because i think there's so much information and there's so much to learn and like as people who are really trying to get rid of this toxic system, I think it is it, it's so informative of like where we've been and where we need to go. So I really, really appreciate it. Good. I'm glad you guys liked it. And thank you again for having me on the show. Yay. Thanks for having me on. Ooh. <laughs> 
So that was obviously amazing. Everyone should go and read Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. It's super fucking good and informative and easy to read. And Grace is obviously super cool. So just go and support her. Yeah, that was so fun. Um, Laura, can I tell you an end of episode confession? Uh, Absolutely, yes. Um, Take this as (laughs) metaphorical if you want, though this is completely serious. I started a garbage can fire in my room by accident while we were recording. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, how? (laughs) Okay, so I have a trash can under my desk. It's like a small trash can. It's mostly just like paper and shit, obviously. And I was like burning these like little cedar like incense kind of they're kind of just like cedar wood chips and I was burning them when we were starting and one of them like flaked off so I like threw it into my trash can and I thought it was out and then as we were like starting to talk to her just like smoke started coming out and I was like fuck and I muted myself and luckily I also have iced tea right here next to me and so I just started like lightly dumping iced tea into my trash can until it stopped oh my god um i didn't want to disrupt but i also thought it was important for me to share (laughs) it's no it's extremely important (laughs) oh my god so yeah so that is a metaphor um for capitalism it is it's 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 a metaphor for the runaway train that is financialized growth under capitalism um <laughs> amazing. As always, you can um like us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. Uh you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can give us money on Patreon so you can get your content early and also access new content and get merch that is only for Patreon people. And yeah, that's about it. <laughs> Ooh. Do you hear that dog? Yes. Uh, that's my landlord's dog. Oh. See, my landlord's dog is ruining our podcast. Landlords are ruining our podcast. Am I right, ladies? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Zoe. I love you, Laura. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch. Oh.